It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. True currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. And you know, um, that cat, you know? that cat, you know, that cat is right below me for some reason. Usually she gets Legata. Legata. Usually she gets the heck out of here. She doesn't, she doesn't like it when I do the Can't show. No, it's like, <laughs> he's just like too, too excitable there. What's that all about? I, I, I need to, uh, somebody who's calm. So, uh, but she's, uh, she's sleeping. I need a Legata cam here so that I, I can i can get her on the show but there 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 wouldn't be much to show it would just be so oh well hey good morning everybody welcome to the program and we have identified you know i hate starting uh with technical difficulties but you know what we're not going to have any today uh because we fixed last week and we found out who the culprit was boy oh boy oh boy wait let's get the 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 dinger out because it wasn't it was not operator error so it was not me okay that's really all i care about um and, i know and it was not vmix this uh, lovely little system that we have here it was um it was not restream we thought it might be restream uh ladies and germs it was your old buddy <laughs> Comcast, yay! All right, and as I as we all know, everybody loves Comcast. So I, after the show, I spent at least forty five minutes. Now I was trying to get out to the burbs because a friend was having a going away party, and so nope, I'm on the horn with uh, Comcast and uh, trying to get this whole thing straightened out. And then they finally sent a text. Well, it looks like we've cleared up the problem that you had. I'm going, oh, really? So it was your, I, you know, and I took a screenshot of that text because uh, when I call them and say, oh, don't you think you owe me a little money because uh, uh, I've got sponsors and stuff uh, on this show and uh, they'll never, they'll never do that. But um, I do have the screenshot that well, they, they, the, they could, if you, if you say it's a business thing, but you'll get yeah. like a dollar nine back. For exactly. Day. Exactly. And I'm like, that's not worth it. Okay, let's just move on here. Just fix the problem. And here we go. And today, and it's so good it's fixed because uh, we've got a great program. It's Tomato Mania 3, 3, 3. The pending, no, wait. Okay, I wish I could remember my own uh, title. Uh, the looming, 
drought. It's a looming drought. And part of the reason I used that title is because I knew it would be good for SEO. And yep, it was. I got a good SEO score on that one. So uh, uh, even though uh, you the drought. ding for a Saturday. Uh, your Saturday ding. We, uh, you know what I haven't done yet? Let's, okay, let me give me frog. I have my frog. Wait, can you see? You got to tilt it. There we are. My friend Mac gave me that. Um, uh, it sounds more like crickets to me, but it's it's pretty close to a, yeah, it's crickets. It's a cricket. Well, frog. it could be a frog. So there we go. Um, yeah. And uh, so we're very excited to talk tomatoes, and we hope everybody watching out there. I haven't even looked at uh, the the comments yet. We've got good morning from hot, dry Portland, Oregon. So yes, this is for you, Ernest, uh, as well. Uh, Dan Costa's watching. Shelly's there. Uh, Skeet, my buddy Skeet, here from uh, Bartlett Tree Experts, because mm-hmm. every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Bruce is waving out there. Uh, and, uh, and then they're all uh, uh, jumping on board right now. So I hope uh, you all have uh, tomato questions, because that's what we're going to deal with. And then uh, around 10 o'clock, Peggy and I are going to talk about um, what we learned this week. And I learned some very interesting things about rain barrels. Um, this ah. week, ah, you know, I learned last week about, uh, downspouts and gutters. Mm-hmm. Learn, I learned about rain barrels this week. So, uh, uh, you're going to hear <laughs> that, that story, which is, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually connected, no pun intended to the, uh, downs, the downspout. Yeah. I should, uh, wait a second. I think, uh, have, have I got that? There we go. That's always available. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, why don't the screaming marmot before you know it? So uh, oh, the screaming marmot will be here. So let's go to our mm-hmm. our, our guests uh, right now, uh, and there they are. And I do believe that even uh, Keith Mueller is uh, good to go. Uh, you're with us, aren't you, Keith? Can you hear me now? Uh, yes, yes, I can. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have no idea. <laughs> I know. Thank you, Comcast. You you have no idea what was going on behind the scenes up until about uh, 8.58 here. So uh, uh, thank you for doing whatever the heck you did, uh, Keith. That that guy, Keith Mueller, on the right is also known as Casey Tomato. And when he's not on the show, he's, he's... uh, making comments uh, about the show and putting up putting up goofy pictures of me uh, interviewing chickens. Um, um, and uh, Bob Benison says, if we get the forecast rain later today, you can take credit because you talked about the dry weather, kind of like a rain dance. Yes, that's the way we work here. It's a, you complain about a drought and then it ends. Um, yep. I wish, and that's, I wish... that's local food forum, Bob. Yes. Um, and, um, uh, I wish the people in California could do that, and the people in Arizona and Utah. Uh, it's and uh, Keith, you live in uh, he's Casey K- Tomato because he lives in Kansas City, Mo. Um, and actually, uh, Keith is from Hannibal, Mo, and he'd had no idea. Uh, uh, Peggy, have you heard of Shoeless Joe from Hannibal, Mo? No, Shoeless Joe the baseball. <laughs> Yeah, but it's a song. Um, see, nobody. Okay, come on. Our, 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 come on, let's let's hear a chorus. Let's hear a. I, I I can't sing it. I you know I just know they go shoeless Joe from Hannibal Mo, and uh, uh, and that's the only part of it I know. Uh, so he can sing it. See that? Yeah. There you go. Right, there, there's 
our Instagram reel from this week's show. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, that's uh, no, not the feet. No. <laughs> uh, but uh, Keith is uh, is is a uh, tomato uh, grower and breeder, and we've grown his. Uh, his varieties. Uh, I, I don't have any of your varieties this year. I have to admit, uh, Keith, um, and and I miss that. Um, and Bruce is asking, "What movie is that from?" I think it's Damn Yankees, but I'm not sure. Okay, getting back to Shoeless Joe. Um, sure, somebody out there knows. Um, and see, but this is the way we do our show, and 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 most radio. <laughs> And uh, TV people are appalled because I do all this digression at the beginning, and 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 all they, uh, you know, their producers are yelling at them in their ears saying, "Get to the subject, get to the subject." Uh, so that's why we'll talk to also say hi to uh, Craig Lahoulier, uh, who's also known as NC Tomato Man. So we got KC Tomato and NC Tomato Man, um, and that's because uh, you're in North Carolina and you are the author. Wait, and I've got it right here. We've got our. There we go. Epic tomato. Stereo. Stereo yeah. epic tomatoes. Oh, I love it. You know, and I was noticing <laughs> yesterday um, that this is one of the all-time great covers. You must be very proud of that cover. It doesn't look like any other gardening book. And I no. had absolutely nothing to do with it. I, well, I sent on, in it. <laughs> on the shelf, even. You know, from yeah. the shelf, even. And the cover tomato is a variety called Green Giant. Ah, Okay. And um, uh, it's a fantastic, excuse me, fantastic tomato book. I got to clear my throat. Green Giant, which in your blog, I'm sure you'll talk about. You were um, experimenting with Green Giant and another variety this year, so I'm sure we'll get oh, to yeah. that. Mm. I'm doing all kind. Of, I'm the mad scientist in my laboratory this summer. Having well, it's not a, yeah. Today's summer, right? First mm. day of summer. Yes, it, it is. I believe is it today or tomorrow? Yeah. It it's is? 1032 tonight. 1032 yeah, tonight is Okay. Father's so. Day, Father's Day, my mother's birthday, my mom and dad's anniversary and first day of summer. And wow. uh, and we're here. This is a big day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and uh um Tina Lulu Mac uh writes in from LA. She she watches us in LA, so you're dealing with drought issues there and we will talk about those today. Uh she says good morning. Please click on the lick button <laughs> what is that okay i think that's the like I, I, I think so but it's, <laughs> I, i'm not i'm not licking anything on this control board okay oh uh, uh, maybe the, maybe it is for epic tomatoes i don't know um but uh so uh welcome you guys um uh craig is also the author of a book about uh straw bale uh, gardening, which you practice, and we will see photos. Of the, and the name of that book, uh, Craig, is? Uh, Growing Vegetables in Straw Bales. All right. Um, so we've got it all covered today. Um, yes. And when, when is the third book coming out? It was supposed to be out last year. Oh, God. It's, as they say in Amadeus, it's, it's, it's up in my, my noggin here. It's <laughs> in my noodle. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I can't stop gardening long enough to actually sit at the laptop and write the bloody thing. But it will be out it, uh, eventually. Uh, we, be we believe you. And then when it is, you will be on the show uh, as soon as, uh, you know, as soon as we get a spare yeah. weekend. Uh <laughs> But uh, you guys, uh, Keith and Craig know each other. They're they're good friends. How is it that you guys happen to know each other? Go ahead, Keith. 
Um, I met Craig when I was in North Carolina, and um, he lived just down the street from my wife's grandparents. A professor took me to his house uh, to show me uh, the tomatoes he had, and that's when... Uh, so a lot of my work actually stems from stuff that Craig gave me, and um, even the stuff I've done with Randy Gardner there in North Carolina um, chases back to that. And... Um, so that was like 94, I think. Yeah, it was a wet day. I think it was a tropical storm. And we kind of geeked out in the garden looking at flower structures and leaf structures and uh, having a conversation that most people would have said, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> what is interesting about this flower? We found some stuff that was interesting. And and who is Randy Gardner, Keith? Um, he's a tomato breeder in North Carolina. He's retired now, but um, a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the varieties that were grown on the East Coast developed from what Randy did. Um, Mount, all the Mountain Series, Mountain Pride, Mountain Fresh, and he is very instrumental in the development of late blight resistant cultivars, which is very important on the East Coast. So a lot of material that is going around from the seed companies, particularly on the East Coast, um, stems from work that Randy's done. He started there in the 70s, I believe, and retired recently. But he's still doing breeding work, and we're still doing cooperative uh, uh, breeding together. Okay. Well, you- and interestingly, he lives about five miles from me, and we've not met yet, but I essentially moved into his backyard. So there are so many interesting synchronicities about Keith and I and who we know and what we do. It's really cool. Well, you were smiling when uh, 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 Keith uh, mentioned Randy Gardner. Is that because he is so famous? He's just really great at what he does. He's doing important work. And uh, Keith gave me his contact info, and I hope to be dropping in, setting up a time, and finally getting to meet him after us being aware of what each other have been doing for decades now. We've never met. All right. Uh, very quickly before we get going, then um, we'll mention this at the end. Uh, you're teaching a tomato growing course with Joe Lample, who is also known as Joe Gardner. Uh, give us, and I put the link uh, on my blog, folks. You can go to uh, mikenovak.net, M-I-K-E-N-O-W-A-K.net, and there's a link there to get you into the class. Tell me about that class. Um, it's a lot of fun. We actually have 600 students in it right now. Wow. It's, um, yeah, it, it's self. Um, Led So there are 10 modules of about 10 lessons each that are in the teachable platform. And we hold hour and a half live Q&As over Zoom with the students every week, uh, an active Facebook group. It's just a great way to not only teach um, tomato enthusiasts what we know, but to learn from them as well. Because you never get to the bottom of understanding tomatoes and the varieties and how to best grow them it's it's the greatest hobby in the world i think when you said uh it was self-taught i thought you were going to say it's self-pollinating um (laughs) (laughs) that's that's a little tomato joke there isn't it mike yeah indeterminate (laughs) all right Uh, but 600 people wow now now there is a tuition you know it's not free uh, but um, I was looking at some of the comments, and people are blown away by what they're learning in this course. And the other interesting thing is we're doing it we're, – we're filming the course 
in our active garden. So with 10 modules, we've only got seven of them filmed. And Joe is coming back to my house in a few weeks, and that's going to involve, we're going to do blind tomato tastings of different colored tomatoes, cook some recipes, troubleshoot the plants, talk about staking and pruning and all of that stuff that um, gardeners don't really do all that well, which leads to the pickup sticks effect in their tomato gardens by the end of the season. Because this is all being filmed, I am finally going to practice what I preach and have an orderly garden. So I say, we shall see how that works. Out. <laughs> oh, wait a second! Uh, we're gonna we're gonna see photos of your garden, and that's it's a lot more orderly than mine. I can tell you that right yeah. now. And and I've seen Peggy's as well. So uh, you're not doing so so poorly there, my friend. Um, all right. So to get us rolling here, uh, I mentioned drought in uh, the title to this, and we might as well get right into that. Um, uh, Craig, you said there's not much of a drought going on in North Carolina, although I have seen some maps with parts of the state uh, are dry. Uh, Keith, you, go ahead, uh, Craig. As I sit here, the remnants of Claudette are passing over my house. Ah. and uh, we, we actually had flash flood warnings for three to five inches of rain, but it took a more southerly tract, and I think we're getting about a half inch of rain. And as a tomato grower, I'm delighted with that because I was really worried about totally saturated plants at this part of the growing season with the possibility of diseases and such. So thus far, I've been quite, quite lucky with the weather conditions we've experienced. But, we'll get uh, into that then too, yeah. uh, overwatering and you know having too much moisture for a plant. Now, Keith, you mentioned something really interesting the other day, which is you can almost, I get the feeling you're, you're sitting there in Kansas City, Missouri, and you can almost feel the the drought moving in from the west or something like that well i'm i'm more concerned about the heat and a heat dome building over the west of me um so what it'll do is it'll influence both kansas city and chicago to some degree where that heat dome ends because the tracks of the jet stream and the moisture and the cooler air will be coming around down that uh backside of the heat dome and that'll affect how much moisture we get and very strong storms and yeah. i'm particularly concerned about hail but um you know it, it's it'll be a deluge or a drought situation but the heat in particular if it builds will make it really hot here and Our, um, that just influences the growing considerably well tell us what the heat does uh, to a tomato plant obviously you need some kind of heat for tomatoes uh, to form and to ripen, but uh, what are the limits of that, Keith? Well, usually around above 90 degrees, and it's more of what they call a diurnal temperature, which is the average temperature throughout a 24-hour period of both the high and the low. So you maybe get up to, you know, 95, 100, but if it drops down cooler at night and the average is around 90, you're okay but during that time when it's really hot uh, there is more energy expended on the plant trying to grow than there is um, it taking in so problems like stress from diseases or pests or water usage all go down and that plant suffers for it um, it really doesn't grow much um, it needs heat to develop flavor. That's like the number one thing that develops flavor. So mm -hmm. it's important, but when it gets too much, it uh, the plant just can't handle it. Uh, uh, would you agree with that, uh, Craig? 
Yeah, and and one of the other incidences, um, it, as many people know, I lived in Raleigh for 28 years, and over that time span, the incidences of long heat waves were growing. So we were getting 90, 95 for six, seven days in a row, and then at night it would only cool down at the 80. So fruit set was really affected, and I really like to grow the large fruited beefsteak types. Those seem mm-hmm. to struggle the most with effective fruit set under times of extreme heat. So we were seeing gaps on the plant where, you know, you'd have a few fruit at the bottom and you can almost read your plant to understand when the heat waves occurred because you'd have blossom drop on those places where there should be tomatoes. Mm. All right. Uh, I want to pop up, uh, uh, if I can find them, here they are, uh, pop up a couple of things that you guys sent me. First of all, this, because... Um, I, I this is was the cover or the the main photo on my my blog post and uh, key, oh, see now that should have popped in okay let's go here there we go there's tomatoes uh, Keith that was pretty cool where did you uh, find that um, well I developed all that that's all my tomatoes so, wow um, there's uh, working with the anthocyan ones in the top I guess that would be left um, that is. That's actually got some of Craig's stuff back in it uh, because it seems back to Cherokee purple and Brandywine is a parent line that was developed into stuff Jim Myers was doing. So mm-hmm. I was trying to get a larger uh, purple line out of that with a uh, really good flavor, but I'm still working on the flavor thing, but it's a beautiful tomato. The other one stems from a cross of Green Giant and, um, and uh, Cherokee purple green. Oh, so Cherokee green. Okay, is that the is uh, it so, now is that the center one uh, top? Yes. Okay. It, it, yeah, and um, down below the purple one is um, a different variety. Um, so I work a lot with genes that are from wild. So mm-hmm. <laughs> Craig is working with the heirlooms, and I'm working with the ancestors. So. A lot of the, the fruit there's, that I work with that are from the wild species are really small, uh, cherry size and smaller sometimes. And that is an attempt to get a gene called delta lycopene, which is an orangish red mm-hmm. color, into a larger fruited variety and have great taste. So that's an heirloom crossed with a species tomato, an ancient one if you want, um, to get that larger size. Um, and that's lower and left. The, that's the lower left, right? Lower left. Okay. The next one to it is one. It's it's not fully ripened, but it's another gene called um, apricot, which is yellowish with a little blush of pink to it. Um, and then that's just a selection of things from um, the tomato plots. I cut one year and put on a white plate. <laughs> Very cool. So, but 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 yeah, you, you, so you do seem... work with large ones too. <laughs> Um, you seem to Keith be working a lot with the lycopene. You um, you you seem to be fascinated by that. Well, there um, there's a lot of these genes that are sitting in gene banks. Um, so Craig rescued a lot of the heirloom varieties, but there's a lot of these genes that researchers recovered from like the 1930s all the way up into the 90s, um, going to South America and looking for the and Central America, and looking for the source material and bringing it back, particularly to UC Davis. Um, mm-hmm. They studied them. They they mapped them. Where is that gene on the DNA? Uh, how does it, what are the genetics of it? How does it inherit? 
and mm -hmm. they kind of just put it on the shelf and not a lot of people have tried to use them in any way, but they impart different flavor mm -hmm. and they also have different nutritional profiles. So I became very interested in doing that. So it's kind of like my niche. You know, and I love that TV show, Find That Gene. It's one of my favorites. Um, all right, let's look at this. You put together a little graphic uh, that uh, shows why it's important to water properly. Okay, on the left column, going from top to bottom, you will see uh, um, short, uh, shallow, frequent watering. So these are the people who come out with their hoses and they're kind of going, burr, burr, and then they say they're done. And then on the right is long, infrequent watering uh explain that graph a little bit keith okay so it does matter like part of this matters because of how you set up your garden uh you know digging deeply so that the roots can go down deeply if somebody goes out and waters every day for you know put the water on the plant for like 15 seconds water the roots not the plant um then you create this zone of just near the surface of where all the water is now, some of it is going to go down by gravity slowly, but there, the next panel is the forces working on that water in the plant and in the ground. But if you water longer, the water goes deeper. So if you're out there every day, you know, putting water on each plant, 15 seconds and stuff, you're getting this really shallow root zone. And if you water deeply, but just like maybe once a week or once every 10 days, you're watering just about the same, but you're changing where the water is in the zone in the plant. So tomato plants, especially if the ground has been worked, will go down deep. And the last panel is trying to show you um, that um, the shallow roots stay in an area where evaporation and evapotranspiration, that's the water moving through the plant, have acted on that plant and you get roots in a dried out zone, but on a deep watering, you get some that are down in the deeper zone. So the, when you're, when you have roots that are in that dry area, that's when you have issues with um, changes to the water status and you get problems like blossom end riot. Mm -hmm. um, this up and down in watering can, uh, result in cracking, and it can also just affect the general uh, health of the plant. Um, so that's why mulching becomes so important and watering deeply. So I'd rather see somebody water deeply at a real low rate for a long time than to go out there every day and water. Um, and uh, Craig, you were interviewed by Nikki Jabour, who's been on this program. She's with uh, a Savvy Gardener. Um mm -hmm. Uh, savvy Gardening, uh, pardon me, SavvyGardening.com, and she wrote an article where you were quoted, um, and she said that uh, garden-grown tomato plants need to be watered less often than those planted in containers, but you're a, really a container guy, Craig, um, so what, what, what are you doing to keep your containers uh, hydrated? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm watering frequently and I'm watering deeply. So, uh, but this sets up an interesting conundrum that I was thinking about and it will relate to drought as well. I am a strong proponent of container gardening and straw bale gardening as techniques, mm -hmm. particularly in cases like mine where I'm growing on a septic field or the place that 
the, the sun was hitting in my previous house was the driveway. It works really well. And you can, given the understanding of what the differences are between what a plant needs in a container or a straw bale or a gardener raised bed, you can pretty much grow anything in a container or a straw bale that you can in a garden. But then I'm thinking of the pressures of drought and the pressures of shortages of water. So I feel particularly fortunate that I can go out into my garden and water my grow bags daily. And I actually count to five, the water starts coming out the bottom and I'm watering my straw bales. I'm counting to between 20 and 30, depending on how warm it is. So that is super saturating the roots. And I've found that the roots in the straw bales and in the containers go all the way down to the bottom of the straw bale as deeply as they can go. But not everybody can do this in the country right now. And so I'm really conflicted about being strong advocates for container and straw bale gardening, where some people in some areas are going to want to try that. But because of water short, short, uh, shortages, try to say that three times fast, <laughs> they, may have, they may have a tough time keeping the plant sufficiently hydrated. And they will see some stress and blossom end drop. So I just feel very lucky right now, very fortunate that I can have the water necessary to be able to keep my plants in the straw bales and in the containers healthy. One of the things Joe Lample noted when he was here is I'm using five-gallon grow bags with about two and a half gallons of soil in them to grow indeterminate tomatoes. And people are saying, how can you do that? I'm pruning them to one or two shoots and they're R&D plants. I'm not growing them to eight feet tall. I'm not growing them for maximum production. You can use mm -hmm. different size containers to do tomato R&D. I only need one cluster of fruit because I want to see what it looks like, what it tastes like, and save some seeds from it. So I like to kind of teach the flexibility of gardening and different approaches based on what kind of needs you have from your plant. Um, and to, that's uh, all right. I want to get into that too. The idea of pruning, uh, because yeah. that is a, it's actually a little bit controversial in the world of, I'm, I'm glad to see you nodding there. Uh, yes, Peggy. We also have uh, a couple of questions for watering that have popped up. If we want questions while we're on that topic. I'll tell you what, uh, we need to take a break right now. When we come back, why don't we hit those questions, Peggy? Uh, so take a look at that. We're talking to Craig LaHoulier, author of Epic Tomatoes, and Keith Mueller, tomato grower and breeder, uh, also known as Casey Tomato, out of uh, Hannibal Moe. Shoeless Keith from Hannibal Moe. Okay. Uh, did we ever get an answer to where that where that came from? I have uh, no no idea whether whether we did. Anyway, it's the Mike Novak. It was damn Yankees. Yeah, I looked it up. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, and we will be right back. You know, summertime can mean a lot of fun for us, especially if we have access to swimming pools, air conditioning, or ice-cold drinks. But for others, it could be a real struggle especially if you can't take shelter or go get a glass of water because you're, well, rooted. Lack of moisture is the most common cause of stress in a landscape, one that is particularly difficult on trees that are very young or very old. It could take months or even years for a tree to fully recover from drought conditions, and that's if it recovers at all. If the leaves or needles on your tree are wilting, discolored, or perhaps even falling off, they could be affected by drought conditions. If this stress is allowed to persist, 
This tree could be attacked by boring insects or even fall prey to stem and root disease. Sounds awful, right? But what can be done? I mean, you can't control the weather. Not to worry, because we can provide your trees with some much needed relief. We can give you guidance on mulching and irrigation. We can monitor your trees for boring insects, bark beetles, diseases, and other common problems that typically impact stressed trees. And upon the return of favorable conditions, fertilizing and pruning can go a long way to help your trees rebound and endure drought conditions. Whether you're a farmer or a backyard gardener, assist your soil in providing key nutrients to your plants with Spectrum Soil Inoculum from Tinyo Biologicals. The beneficial microorganisms in Spectrum break down and release vital nutrients and make them more accessible to your plants. Spectrum works with nature to decompose organic matter into humus, building richer, healthier soil. Spectrum is approved for use on certified organic crops and is OMRI listed. Get Spectrum at blazing-star.com. to give your soil a superpower. It's called composting. If you don't have a backyard, you need to contact Collected Resource Compost. CRC has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. They bring you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter from your kitchen, they swap it out and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectedresource.us. And speaking of composting, uh, we just got a note from our friend Sarah Batka at uh, Illinois Extension. Um, she says, hey, can you mention our compost collection event this Saturday, June 26th in Park Forest? It's 7 a.m. to 12 noon. And uh, here's the link. Um, it is at Forest Boulevard in Liberty Drive in Park Forest. Uh, again, from 7 a.m. to to noon this Saturday, June 26th. So uh, the idea is uh, you uh, drop off your yard slash kitchen slash garden waste to be composted and stay for free giveaways. Um, and you can even bring, although I don't know why anybody would bring their grass clippings, man, they're such so valuable nitrogen uh, for your own compost pile, but not everybody has a compost pile. Um, but you can bring grass clippings, leaves, landscape waste. And boy, have I got some bags of landscape waste. I should schlep them all down there because I don't trust the city of Chicago to pick them up proper and dispose of them properly. You know, that's what I should do. I need, Sarah, I might come down there with about six bags of yard waste which have been sitting in my garage for way too long so um 
there you go. And uh, uh, that's our, uh, our shout-out to uh, Illinois Extension. Uh, welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki talking to the tomato experts here in Tomato Mania 3, the looming drought. We've been talking a little bit about watering and drought. Yes, uh, Keith? What? <laughs> You're, you're I'm pointing, pointing to Craig, that guy. He's the expert. Oh no, that's not true. Now, obviously, that's not true. Any guy that can breed a tomato is is got has got to know something uh, about that. And I've grown your tomatoes, and they're excellent. So, um, no, you can't you can't get away with that on this show, uh, Peggy. Let's go to some of those questions and uh, see if we can't uh, answer them. We have one question here from Michael, who says, "I thought tomato roots only grow in the top six inches of soil." So you were, you how were re- deep do they grow? How far do they go? Keep, um, oh, cr- I don't know exactly how deep. I've heard 24 inches, it, but that's like in a setting so that they can do that. It depends on how deep, how deep you work that soil, the soil conditions, how deep they're going to go. Because if they hit a, a plow pan or a cultivated pan, if you have that built up and you don't, do things like double digging. They'll go down and just kind of run out laterally and mm-hmm. um, not go down that deep. So it depends on how you water and how well that soils work. But they can go down easily 12 inches, maybe 18. You know. So, so. My, my, my straw bales are 24 inches tall. And at the end of the year, when I pull those plants out, the roots are actually through the bales into the ground. Mm. And they're in the ground about six to eight inches. So they are massive and a straw bale is the equivalent of about two 20 gallon containers so tomatoes have plenty of room to um yeah Mm -hmm. which is why i like straw bales because you think about what it would cost to get good quality potting mix to fill two 20 gallon containers and use a six dollar straw bale it it, that makes its own loam so i think it's a really good method for that um yeah not to get too technical here too but um a lot of the roots will go out near the surface because that's where the oxygen is and that's where a lot of the microbial activity hopefully is. And so that is an important zone and that is a good reason to mulch. But they will go down deeper and if they go, the roots could get deeper and get into that more stable moisture that's not evaporating off. That's better for the plant. That's the point I was yeah. trying to make earlier. Okay. Yeah, and I'm seeing a lot of adventitious roots popping out on some of my plants this year as well, Keith, which are the little bumps near the bottom of the plant, and roots will come out. And I've never considered that a bad thing. Um, it just happens, and it happens to a lot of my plants. Hmm. Okay. Well, so then related to that would be Max's question of yes, the watering methods that you showed of of the longer watering as opposed to the shallow does this work in shallow raised beds or how should we be watering in shallow yeah craig why don't why why don't you start with that well so it depends on the depth of the soil and i mean you should always water deeply but is it a six inch raised bed is it one and a half or is it two feet and what's under the raised bed um, i know that i've not used them that often but i've got one on my lawn that's about a foot deep and again the roots are going it's it's on the lawn and the roots of the plants are going through into the lawn so uh, deeper is better for raised beds for sure for especially for plants like tomatoes keith um i froze up there <laughs> i don't know what happened I missed all that. 
Oh. <clears throat> I was just I was just saying deeper is better in raised beds, and certainly if you want to grow tomatoes, six or ten inches is probably not enough soil. You want to have a good depth if you can to uh, to let those roots really stretch out. Okay. I would just note that in this time, uh, you can't really see that. We have uh, rain on the way. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I sent it out. Craig was doing the rain dance. Went, went to the post office, had him ship you a little bit, so I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> um, so uh, let's get to the, uh, the idea of uh, – because uh, I want to show some of the other stuff that uh, – <laughs> Keith, oh, wait a second. Oh, my goodness. I didn't pop these up here. Um, I wanted to show those wonderful photos of um, the uh, the cracked. Cracking. To me. Uh, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Um, I, I've got to forward that to myself, but I, I can get the conversation started by taking us to uh, Craig's backyard because we were talking about how you grow tomatoes here. And uh, tell us what we're looking at. That is one of my main R&D sections where I'm doing um, hot peppers that I'm dehybridizing. And when I say dehybridizing, it means I've, I've grown a hybrid that I like and I save seeds from it and grow out the second generation and find diversity and then follow through on different things. I've got eggplant growing in five-gallon grow bags. I've also got some dwarf tomato variety project, uh, dwarf tomato project varieties growing as well, and I've got them up in a pallet because when we get rain here, um, it can really flow down over that gravel, and I didn't want uh, tomatoes really don't like wet feet, so this helps for them to uh, stay healthy. All right, uh, and then uh, this, <laughs> not many people have this in their backyard. There's my garden. Um, yeah, and so it's, there's a few really interesting anecdotes about this, the first of which being we have two large rescue dogs and a small one. And uh, my wife, Sue, said, don't you think the dogs are going to, you know, run into your tomato plants? They think I have set up the coolest obstacle course in the world. And when we're out <laughs> in the hammock, they are spending hours running through, and they have yet to clip a plant or a straw bale. They, it's just agility training mm. for them. So what you see yeah. there are uh, 28 straw bales. 20 of them contain indeterminate tomatoes, two each. And then on the left side near the hammock are uh, sets of four bales pushed together. Um, one of that cluster contains three rows of bush beans. The other contains four hills of summer squash. What, and what's interesting about straw bales is we've been picking squash and beans about 40 days from direct seeding. The heat being generated by the center of those bales as they compost advances um, the maturity dates for direct seeded things like beans and squash. Um, everything is growing well. I go out every day, remove the yellow lower or blemish lower foliage, um, tie things up. You're seeing that garden staked pretty well and pruned pretty well right now. It, it's just remarkable. You, you talked about me, your garden being messy. That is not messy, okay? That is, uh, that is ridiculous, actually. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's look at this. Are you just showing off by showing us that you have tomatoes already? I have really good fruit set, and the reason is um, we have not had an overabundance of rain, meaning I'm doing most of the watering. I water at the base of the plant deeply, so we're not suffering much blossom drop. 
uh, and the the lack the relative lack of rain has kept the foliage dry, meaning I'm not seeing very much septoria leaf spot or early blight. And even the critters have been kept down. Um, the worst I've been finding are a few aphids. But yeah, I'm going to, um, if I average 20 pounds of fruit for the 90 plants that I'm growing, I'll be doing a lot of canning. And maybe people want to do a little caravan out to my house in Hendersonville. Uh, it's going to be a fun year. Every, almost uh -huh. everything in it is a mystery, a new project. Uh, I've got 10 of my favorites growing. Everything else, I have no idea what the outcomes are going to be. Yeah. Uh, and now some, this is something that Keith sent me. Uh, whoops, and I shouldn't have done that, but uh, here we go. Uh, what are we looking at? This is obviously some kind of disease. That's probably one of the most common uh, leaf spot diseases that people listening to are exposed to. Um, it's called septoria. And I had a close-up of that. Those are smaller spots. It does look like a few other bacterial problems, which in the north some people can have. I don't really want to get into that. Um, it's, this is more common, septoria. And so they're, they're small little spots, of at most eighth to maybe a quarter of an inch wide. They're tan or they're uh, gray like that. And there may be a little bit of yellow halo near the lesion. But um, this is a disease seems to be getting more prevalent. And unfortunately, there's no real good sources of resistance for that currently. There's a few lines. Um, they have what's called um, or horizontal resistance to them. But um, that doesn't really hold up real well unless that's kind of complex. But the whole garden is planted to that variety the, the, mm -hmm. the resistance holds up well, but if you've got things mixed in, it's a little bit iffy because those other lines become sources of uh, inoculum for the septoria, and it just kind of takes off anyway. Um, so I think uh, breeders in Cornell and I think in Pennsylvania State are working on septoria and people in the USDA, but so far nothing that I've seen really blocks it. There's a theory that stink bugs, the brown, I don't know if I'm saying this right, brown marminated stink bug, which moves around at night compared to the, the, the more common green stink bug, which is only in the day, is moving that disease around at night while the plant's moist and, and transmitting it. But nobody's really proved that yet. But that could be the reason why Septoria is really taking off. Mm. But people are going to probably see that in the viewing area. All right, and then we have? This is classic early blight. In fact, I took the picture just yesterday. Um, I'm taking care of uh, tomatoes for a neighbor, and uh, I found that on there. So early blight has the yellow halo around it. The lesion makes a target-like appearance, and it's because that lesion is growing and expanding, just like tree rings. And on a plant where it's really taking off, those lesions will coalesce, join together, and it'll defoliate the whole plant. This is another very common disease. They both need moisture and they both need um, warm temperatures to take off. And so once you have those conditions, even morning dew can do it. So there, mm -hmm. there are some sources of resistance for this. It's, again, it's what they call um, the, uh, vertical resistance so i think i got that right but um it the best 
things that people have for this without going to resorting to sprays is to pick these lesions off before they get taken over and orient your plants in a way so the airflow or sunlight gets to them, particularly in the morning, if that's possible. Um, so space plants further apart. But that watering comes key with both of these in that you don't water the foliage, you water the roots. So soaker mm -hmm. hoses and keeping, in particularly early blight, the soil from rain splashing back up onto the plant and transferring the that inoculum is important. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. all that's really key to those particular leaf diseases. And, and very common. Yeah, and and you know most people they're going to put sprinkler on and uh, or just splash the water on it, and it really does affect the the uh, the ability of the plant to catch a disease, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, and this came from uh, from Craig. Uh, is this the dreaded late blight? This is a dwarf called Dwarf Walter's Fancy that oh. is is being sold by the Victory Seed Company, uh, at least, probably others. And we intentionally bred a variety called Variegated. Oh, okay. Uh, with, <laughs> I thought it was a disease. Of, no, no. That, that, that's one of our, I call them ornamental tomato plants for those that uh, really want to put something a little eye-popping in their garden. And the variegation on this variety holds very well. And it produces eight ounce delicious ivory colored tomatoes. I named it after my grandfather Walter, who was really the person who stimulated the interest in, in gardening in me many, many years ago. Okay, see, and I completely got it wrong because there was no uh, key to it, and uh, that's very interesting, I thought. Okay, because you had talked about late blight the other day, and right. you'd, you'd seen it finally in your – and somebody's shuddering there, so uh, uh, that's not a good thing, obviously. Uh, let's uh, go to this because this, I finally uh, tracked this down. Um, and this, uh, Keith, you sent this to me, and we just had a question uh, from Gloria who says – uh, she wants to know about splitting when tomatoes start to ripen in containers. Well, talk about some of these splits, Keith. Okay, so I wanted to bring this up because um, they're all forms of cracking. Hmm. But the, as the tomato fruit develops, you know, it goes from a little pea size into like a golf ball size into the, the regular full-size tomato. The cells are doing different things, but once they've ripened, that, that growth stops, and they will crack for a different reason, and that's called bursting, actually. So sun golds, thin-skinned, particularly pink tomatoes, tend to burst more. Um, that's a, a subtle thing, and when you're breeding, that's important because people go, oh, those tomatoes crack. Well, did they burst or did they crack? So the real way to separate that is if they're green, generally, that's when they're cracking. But if they're ripe, it's when they're bursting. And it has to do with the, some of the same reasons. It's watering, it's fertilizer uptake, it's changes in the up and down of watering. And that's, again, why you water deep and you mulch. You try to keep that soil consistently moist, and they don't, they're not as susceptible to this up and down and water movement and nutrition. Uh, the first one's radial cracking, where it it's uh, like longitudinal rinds on the map, runs usually from the top or the bottom to the top. Um, the other one's concentric, which either is in rings or sometimes 
that make interesting spiral patterns. Uh, the next one is weather checking. And that poor tomato has a bunch of different reasons that's doing that. But um, it's got both weather check, which are the fine little concentric cracks running out, but it also has concentric cracking too. That is a green shouldered plant, even when it, the fruit is ripe. It has a green tint to it, and it's mm -hmm. believed that the sun hits that, moisture gets on the shoulders and causes what they call weather checking, but they don't know the exact reason of weather checking. That's pretty but spectacular, though. It really, it, I, a lot of people would, now, is that edible? I would assume it is. It was It was edible. Cut that part off, and <laughs> the rest of it below it was fine. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen tomatoes even at markets like that, you know, or, or coming yeah. out of the garden. And then the bursting. Uh, so the the fruit is already ripe. It hasn't really cracked yet. But what's happening is either someone applied fertilizer and or it set dry for a while and then rain came and the water just made that boom, that tensile strength not hold on the skin and pop open. Now, sun golds will do that. Um, and some other cherry varieties, when you pick them, they'll, when you, and you take the stem off, I've got, a, can you go live here? Yeah. A lot of cherries I notice do that. As you're picking them, they're suddenly so, bursting. Okay. Wait, let me, let me, let me get the, the, the close up here for you. Okay. Thank you. Hold on. If the thing will click, that would be good. There we go. Okay. So when you first take this, I got to orient myself here. This is <laughs> I know it's really it's backward. It's really strange. Okay, so when you first take this off, a lot of times, and you break the pedestal off, they will burst and <laughs> and crack there from that point of attachment. Really, this one okay. didn't happen mm -hmm. to do it. Yeah, it's really it's really notorious on sun golds and the sweet million cherry tomatoes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the the pink tomatoes, the the clear skin tomatoes are generally a little bit thinner. Uh, the skin and the tensile strength is like, so they'll burst real easy. They'll also crack easier. Yeah. And then the passiated tomatoes, the bumpy large ones do that too. I found black cherry um, cracks really, yeah. really easily. Um, yeah, I always advise people, if it's going to rain, go out and pick your cherry tomatoes. Or else when you come back really? the next day, okay. they're all going to be popped. Yeah. Huh. Mm -hmm. Now, is let me ask, is it really the worst thing in the world if a tomato cracks? Um, the fruit flies will find it pretty quickly oh, okay. and start uh, poking around around that crack, and mm. they have no shelf life whatsoever. Um, overly ripe sun golds, I find, are not the most pleasant thing to eat. <laughs> Keith seems to think the same thing. <laughs> they get really funky. I mean, Keith was showing it. So if people hear the word physiological effects, that's really what we've been talking about. And they're not genetic things so much as the effect of conditions on the tomato. Um, they're in, uh, blossom end rot would be another one that would be a physiological effect. But what I've found is that if I pick the tomato at about half to three quarters right, particularly the larger fruited ones, I can get them in the house with much less cracking and just sitting on the shelf in my kitchen for two days, they'll fully ripen up and they will taste indistinguishable from tomatoes that hang on the vine. Critters can be, can be more attracted to tomatoes that are left to hang on the vine as vine ripe. So mm -hmm. I try to not let any of my tomatoes go vine ripe anymore um, just yeah. because of perishability, because of cracks and because of um, hungry critters. 
Yeah. yeah. It's nothing uh, like watching that tomato for just ripe, just ripe, just ripe. You come out, there's a chomp out of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. we we got to the point last year. Uh, this is this was a new strategy for us in our yard. We got to the point last year where if the, a tomato just had a sign of blush, we yanked mm-hmm. it. We pulled it off mm-hmm. uh, the vine because the critters were, were wreaking havoc uh, yeah. with it. And one thing we tried, though, Kathleen did uh, that worked very well. She found <laughs> a store of old nylons, and we would wrap <laughs> the tomatoes in the nylons, and the critters left them alone, and they ripened on the vine. So you can't do that if you've got thousands of tomatoes, obviously, but if you've got a few that you you, you cherish. Uh, before we go here, because we're getting to the end of it, uh, Craig, we've got to give you a chance to uh, – we've already mentioned your class, but your, the dwarf, dwarf Tomato Project. Yeah. Um, really, if anybody – the best way to reach me is just nctomatoman at gmail.com or my website, craigluhulier.com. Find me at Instagram on at nctomatoman. I'm on Facebook again now. But I'm really happy to answer questions that people may have. Um, the Dwarf Tomato Project, uh, if people go to Victory Seed Company, they carry all 133 of our releases. And if people want to jump in and help us, send me an email and we'll get you some seeds next year and have you be one of our um, testers and experimenters. Uh, you mentioned uh, before the show started today the, the Mexican midget tomato. And uh, explain to people what that is. Um, I was actually just about to text Keith um, something about it. I'm convinced there's something unique about Mexico midget. It's a variety Mexico midget, to, okay. Mexico midget. It's a variety yeah. sent to me by um, a man named Barney Lehman in California. He was in his 80s when he sent it to me in 1990. His brother acquired it from Mexico when he was delivering hay back and forth over the border and is the only tomato in my collection of 4,000 or so that don't germinate like all of the others. I have found a way to make it germinate properly, but no seed company sells the authentic variety because no one can get it to meet germination standards. But I've figured out a way to do that. It is literally the size of a pea. And I'm talking about open up a pea pod. You can slip four or five Mexico midgets in there. Really good flavor. And we're starting to use it to breed some of our dwarfs that are coming out really good. That's, uh, yeah, because I grew a Mexico midget several years ago, but it wasn't that. Uh, at all, so we must have had one of the copycats. Seed Savers knows they're they've got the wrong variety. They just don't know what to do about it because when a company has been selling a crossed variety for years and years and years, what do they do? Um, they've got the right variety. They just haven't figured out a way to um, deal with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so really, I'm the only I'm the only person people can get it from um, at this point. Yeah, and what's what's your favorite dwarf at this point of the new ones that came out this year? Oh, gosh. Um, Dwarf Purple Heartthrob is really cool. It is an eight-ounce, strong heart-shaped purple, the color of Cherokee purple, with with jagged gold and greenish lines on it. And it's really, really – it's got that deep crimson flesh that Keith knows well, the ones that the black tomatoes have where I guess there's some chlorophyll retention going in there, Keith, to to keep that deep color, or is it just a a dark crimson gene that's controlling that? Probably both. Yeah, yeah. Really good, uh, uh, and and explain very really shortly um, uh, what is it that makes a dwarf tomato? Why why are they called dwarf? There's a gene that creates a tomato variety, and the first one actually popped up in the 1850s, but no one really did a lot of work with them. A very thick central stem. I find they behave like indeterminants that expand upward at half the rate of a true indeterminate. 
So to me, they combine the beauty of the determinants and being compact with the generally gradual fruiting of the indeterminates, meaning they can develop really good flavors. And they're just a great thing for a container and patio and deck gardeners to put in a five-gallon pot and enjoy the the quality and the excitement of growing all of the different colored and flavored heirloom types. And, you know, we're, we're waiting to see. They're out there. The court of public opinion is going to let us know what they think of them. Uh, yeah, uh, but I, I grew a, a dwarf in its uh, last year, and again, it's so much easier to manage mm-hmm. because it's not seven feet tall. And, uh, it's, and there's uh, still potato leaf varieties and regular varieties and variegated anthocyanin hearts, yeah. you name it. Um, we got some with chartreuse, um, working on one with yellowish foliage this year. So mm. what yeah. the heck? Yeah. Why? Well, because I can. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is why. This, and this is why you guys were part of Tomato Mania 3. Uh, thank you, Craig LaHoulier. As he just mentioned, you can go to his website, craiglahoulier.com. He's also on Facebook. He's on the gram. Uh, you can go there. Uh, Keith is on Facebook. He's on Twitter. Uh, you gave up on Twitter, right, uh, Craig? Uh, yep. I'm yep. off Twitter. I was off Facebook for a while as well, but I was cajoled to well, re-enter. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to bail on some of these social media, too, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you. Uh, but uh, Keith is uh, always a presence. As KC Tomato, you can find him everywhere. Um, and uh, and by the way, the links are on uh, my uh, – I don't think I added the link that you sent me last year. I have to put it up there, Keith. Um, uh, but it was – is that old page still up there that you've had? It some- is still there. Like yep. for, for, it's still there. Katiecom.net. Yeah. Yes. With Since all the 1994. <laughs> holy smoke! Okay, I got to put that link up there so that uh, folks it's can. Vintage. It is uh, absolutely. Yeah. My old website host got hacked, and I I can't edit or anything, oh. so I just ignore it. Oh, so that's a shame. That um, I would like to point out too. Um, both Craig and I are involved in a cooperative breeding project. Oh right, thank you. Um, yeah. And it, it's it's. It's through USDA funding with Organic Seed Alliance, uh, several universities, Julie Dawson at the Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's called SeedLink, and you can go to SeedLink.com, and you can look up um, these cooperative breeding projects, both the Dwarf Project and some of the stuff that I'm doing. So I, it helps me work and collaborate with other uh, growers and chefs, the, uh, the girls at Tomato Bliss that started there in Chicago and are now um, – canning heirloom uh, tomatoes and things. They just got picked up by Milk Street, but um, they're on that too. So you can see what other people are getting from the different varieties. And it helps people choose things for their garden, particularly focusing in on the Midwest. Yeah. Great. And and I have those links. Uh, actually, I just forgot to mention it, but if you go to my blog post uh, under the headline Keith Mueller, a.k.a. KC Tomato, you will see the link to the USDA's Organic Agricultural Research and Extension Initiative, uh, the Organic Seed Alliance, and SeedLinked. Uh, the links are, are all there. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm your friend, <laughs> Keith. I'm trying to get it right. I just happen to forget things sometimes. Uh, I just wonder. 30 seconds on that. Why it's really important is Keith's breeding tomatoes and I'm breeding tomatoes. We can't answer the question from someone in New Hampshire or Seattle or California or Florida. How will these tomatoes do for me? We will someday, but we don't know yet. So what we need is feedback from people who are trying the various dwarfs and the various tomatoes Keith are breeding. How are they doing where you are? Because there are going to be local adaptations to these varieties. They're going to be happier in some places than others. It will help us to know it. 
so that we can then guide people and help them succeed in growing these. Yeah, it's all about citizen science, um, and uh, mm-hmm. that's that's the key part of this. So, folks, you can get involved too. Go to those links. Uh, mm-hmm. They should start. Should they start with Seed Linked, Keith? Sure. Oh, or any of them, whatever. And just see how you yeah. can help out. Craig and Keith, thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, I thank can't you. wait to, for uh, Tomato Mania 4. Um, yes. But I hope we talk before then. All right. You guys have a great day and much uh, success to you in gardening. Right, keep, keep, keep us posted about everything going on, okay? Thank you, Mike and Peggy. Thanks, Mike. And take care, Keith. All right. We shall right. return. I'm with an older tree and there's just something about it that draws you to it as similar to the ocean draws you to it and when I see a big tree and I'm gonna climb it I enjoy that moment and I'll give the tree a big old hug. My name is Chase Ferris. I work out of the Clackamas office just outside Portland, Oregon. I've been with Bartlett Tree Experts since October of 2016 and I'm a climber. I was kind of surprised and taken back by the, the quality of equipment and the amount of effort that goes into keeping everyone safe and keeping the jobs productive and making sure that you are progressing every day. And I enjoy that because I like to learn. I like the Raptor and we we use it quite a bit out on the West Coast. Our trees are pretty tall and the Raptor is great for saving energy, allowing you to get into the canopy with minimal physical exertion so that you're fresh and ready to climb and do what you need to do you know, when you're 65, 70 feet up or higher. So at my office, I feel like you could take just about anyone, put a crew together and send them out to a job and have it be successful. And that has to do with trusting the people you work with, feeling safe around them and knowing their strengths and weaknesses. Every tree needs a champion. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a sipson of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root of bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, lawn serene. Give me all that I can. And welcome back to the show. Um, and I know that uh, some of you, guess what, have been dealing with streaming problems again. And guess what? It's Comcast. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, Comcast, for nothing. Um, and uh, that's what I'm going to do a commercial for them and say, thank you for nothing. Um, but it's now I notice that now the stream is back. It's strong. Yeah, great. After the tomato guys. But don't worry if it, you were having issues and it was uh, bumping along. Uh, we've got the recording like we did last week. We'll we'll pop it up and you'll be able to see all the way through. Just love having uh, Craig and Keith on the show. Uh, they they sure know their stuff and they're a lot of fun. So it's uh it, it's such a pleasure to have them here. Um, and <laughs> guess 
Just have three hours of tomato mania. Yeah, exactly. Uh, guess who's going to be on the phone with uh, Comcast after the show? There we go. Uh, so uh, we need to start with uh, you're going to st- you're going to do the first one, uh, Peggy. Here, uh, it's going to be this little segment we call. Whoops. Okay, I don't know why it had that stuff up there. It shouldn't have. What had... you learned this week? You hate Comcast. Oh wait a minute, we knew that. Wait, one. I hate myself because it did this. You know, shouldn't be doing that. All right. Okay. Um, um, so Peggy, you get to start us off about what you learned this week. Well, let's see. It's kind of tricky to figure that out, but I did learn a new color, and I learned that from my friend Mike Novak. What? A color? I'm so darned tasteful, it hurts to look at me burgundy. (laughs) Okay. I know what you're talking about, and thank you for mentioning that, because, yeah, I had another piece uh, pop up on uh, Garden Rant. Go to GardenRant.com, and... uh, it's a it's a it's a piece I wrote about um, the Dr. Huey Rose. Tell us what a Dr. Huey Rose is, Peggy. It is a uh, rose. Well, Captain George C. Thoman in 1914, you said, uh, originally came up with the rose. Arr, Arr, and, Captain George uh, C. Thoman. In 1920, by Bob Inkin Atkins, it's a hybrid witcherana. But it's a rambling rose in the color. I'm so darn tasteful. It hurts to look at me burgundy flowers with yellow stamens. <laughs> well, but the important, invasive. Uh, well, no. Prone to black spot. Yep, all those bad things. But the important thing is now it's used basically as stock as, rose, as stock buried. So what Underground. you do is you graft the uh, the pink or the yellow or the white rose on top of it, and that is underground. And what happens is. The top part of your rose dies over the winter, and then this oh-so-tasteful, uh, it hurts to look at me, uh, burgundy-colored rose comes up. Over. And if you wonder why sometimes you have a rose and, and it seems to revert, that's because it's the stock part of the rose coming up uh, the next it year. Has, you usurped back its right to bloom. Exactly. So... Um, Anyway, uh, so I'm well. I'm glad you learned that, uh, and even if it was that, for that me, was, that was my original one before the one I mentioned about the butter, which I'll save for another week. No, 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 no. You got to do the butter because it happened <laughs> this week. Okay, something else about butter. What did you learn about butter? Ah, uh, yes, um, soft butter that when you actually manage to drop the dish, of course, will flip over 180, and it will take you days to find the little bits of butter that have splattered all over your kitchen. Yes, uh, and, and yeah. I get that. That's uh, that is. I've been there, been there, done that. Who's coughing in the background? I don't know. I'm just like, I who could possibly still be around? So somebody's got to be. Oh, I think uh, uh, <laughs> Keith is still there. Keith. I, I have a squirrel looking in my window with its front paws on the screen, right outside my computer here. Hmm. Okay, Keith, <laughs> are, are you are you are you just watching the program here uh, in the background? Yeah, I was just watching, and <laughs> I think my son coughed or something. Oh, okay. So I'm. I, I will, I, I'll turn the mic off. 
Uh, I can do that too here. Uh, so uh, glad you're watching okay. the show. Great. You're you're like th- one of three people now. Great. Okay. Uh, um, so um, Matt and the squirrel outside my window that's still here, stuck to my screen. <laughs> stuck to your screen? That's just <laughs> staring at me. <laughs> that that is weird. Okay. Uh, that's something to uh, to do on a Sunday morning uh, while you're uh, attempting to do uh, a live stream broadcast or whatever we call it these days. Um, okay, here's my my what I learned this week, and it's about rain barrels. And I learned a couple of things. Ah. Uh, all right. So here's the, so uh, the go, go back a week though to what happened to your downspout to set the. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to do. It, it it starts with the first rain we had here in a long time was last week. And I was overjoyed and I went out the back and it's it's raining and we're getting rain in the yard. And, but I'm, and I'm looking at my gutter and the rain is, the water is pouring down onto my porch. The gutter is overflowing. And I'm like, what? What the, what the heck is that all about? So um, I, uh, I'm, I'm reaching up around the top because I'm right by the area uh, where the down, it goes into the downspout and I'm cleaning it out and the downspout's clean and it's at least the area going in and it's still overflowing. And so I start grabbing the, the downspout and it comes loose and it comes off. And now the water's just pouring down and uh, the downspout's flopping over and I have to kind of lean it and say, okay, I'll wait till the rain's over. And, uh, and then I will, I will deal with this. So, uh, a day or two later, I, I look out and the <laughs> downspout still leaning against the porch. I went, okay, uh, let's fix that. So I, I grabbed the downspout and I get my tools and, uh, and the downspout's really heavy. And I'm like, what the heck? This it, a downspout's not heavy. It's, it's basically air. It was surrounded by aluminum. Yeah. Um, and uh, I realized that it, two points in the downspout is completely clogged with leaf matter uh, and whatever's come off the roof for the last, I don't know, 10 years. Um, so I'm jamming that stuff out. And, of course, I throw it into my yard because it's compost. And yeah. uh, uh, But I cleared that out and I went, well, no wonder the thing's so heavy. And so I reattach the... Uh, the downspout and uh uh and it's firmer than ever and i'm really happy about it so i don't know why this happened but uh a couple of days later um i think it was kathleen because uh we had forecast of more rain coming Mm -hmm. and she said you know with the drought conditions we really should be saving this water let's put it in our rain barrels because i've had Two rain barrels sitting in the yard for, I don't know, six years since the uh, community garden folded that we were mm-hmm. part of. Um, and I had, and, you know, for six years been meaning to attach them. And I said, okay, it's probably time to do that. So we we do some research. We find a, a rain barrel kit and we um, uh, we attach we go we go out to the local box store this was a menards and they had this kit and i brought it home and i'm attaching and it actually wasn't that hard put it all together did a test i uh had the hose go up on the roof and the water drain and yep going in the rain barrel we connected it to the other rain barrel so that what happens if you connect them at the bottom they'll fill up like this together which is uh, a series there yeah and and we went 
cool. And it's going to rain tonight. So this is good timing and done. Well, not done, actually, as it, as it, tur- as it turns out. Because, but wait, there's more. But wait. Well, this was a storm that blew through here. It was pretty ferocious when it came through. I saw it on the radar when I woke up, but I could hear it in the night. Uh, lots of wind. And uh, Kathleen comes uh, to me in the morning and says, you know, uh, one of the rain barrels tipped over. I went, tipped over? What? Ha- what? And I figured out that um, uh, probably what happened is when that first blast of wind came, when that storm front came through, there was nothing in the rain barrel. It was empty. And it tipped it over, uh, not all the way, because it's attached to the the downspout with this hose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it tipped as far as it could go, and then the hose goes and stretches out, and it's holding the rain barrel at this rakish angle, okay, <laughs> actually like this angle, and um, uh, it's also being held to the other rain barrel by the hose at the bottom where they're they're joined. So it's at this angle. So what happens is... It was still connected to the downspout. And even at this angle, it's collecting water. So now I got a rain barrel half full of water, which is 55 gallons is is the rain barrel. So, you know, I got 25, 30 gallons of water. Let's see, eight, eight pounds a gallon. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. And and we're Wait, trying to figure out. Got my calculator here. Let's <laughs> trying to figure out how to. I can't just push it up because it's too heavy and it has made the the cinder blocks it's on slip a little bit. So it's uh, <laughs> so now we open the spigot at the bottom of it and we start draining the water into other containers so that we can save the water because we don't want to lose those containers uh, th- that water because it's water right now is very precious Same in the water, middle. Yeah. Yeah, and we're we're in a drought here in the Midwest, and we'll find out more about this from meteorologist Rick DeMaio in a few minutes. And it's dechlorinated, so even better. And, and, and exactly, it's dechlorinated, although it's got all the bird poop and everything from the roof, but, you know, you don't drink that water, folks. By the way, don't drink the water out of your rain barrel, okay? It's not potable. Um, so <laughs> we managed to get a lot of this into various tubs. Finally, the rain barrel is loose enough so that we can and get it back into position. Uh, meanwhile, the bottom hose finally gave and it popped out of one of them. So I had to, I had to redo that. Um, the, uh, the, the upper hose that, that had, you know, was holding it onto the gutter. I mean, I'm sorry, the downspout was still intact. It's uh, just amazing that, that it was still there. Uh, so by the end of the day, I had it fixed and now they're set and we're supposed to get more rain today. Uh, we'll see how well that works. If it blows over again, I'm just going to melt it down, um, and I don't know what to do with. But that that it is all in half, and you make it a planter, uh, something like that. But who who? It never occurred to me that the first gust of wind could blow over a an empty rain barrel. It's not it's not something you prepare for. It's not something you think of. Um, and then, and then, and worse, I mean, if it had just blown over and the, the connection had broken, I would have just lifted it up and put it back into position and gotten a new connection, but the connection held. And so it filled with water, even though it was tilted at that angle. So this is in the back of your yard on the left-hand side, looking into your yard. 
So you're like stepping over plants and stuff to get to it? Oh. No, it's 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 right by the porch. So it's mm-hmm. yeah, right uh right behind the porch. In fact, it fell over onto one of my indoor plants and uh broke off a few leaves, so I had to do some pruning there. Uh but that plant's okay. It's going to be fine. Um yeah, it it was it was a a bit of a mess. So um that is that is yep that's what i learned this week um (laughs) so we have there's an irony irony here we have all these um these great uh guests uh talking very important stuff about how to grow tomatoes and great advice and that the stream is like going and now we have my dumb story about uh how i can't even set up a rain barrel properly and i waited six years to do it and it's streaming clear it's it's out there everybody knows this story nobody's going to it's out there forevermore yes it, it is it is uh on the inner tube in fact it'll be uh getting to the planet saturn in about six days and then it'll join the voyagers uh out there in space and yeah, uh, in the cosmos. The yes. n- heading for the delta quadrant n- yes new horizons okay yeah so um what else did we have here? We got a few minutes. We got a few more things that we want. Uh, what's going on with Kane County and their new recycling? Oh, right, 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 right. Let me find that here because I got a notice the other day uh, from my friend Jennifer Jarland, and she is the Kane County Recycling Program Coordinator, um, and uh, she's very excited because uh, Kane County is opening a third permanent recycling center this one's in aurora and you know i'm surprised they didn't have one in aurora already because obviously that's the largest town in kane county um city in kane county and it's going to handle electronics appliances clothing and scrap metal so now they have recycling across all of kane county uh in the southern area which is aurora central area which is batavia and uh West Dundee for the northern area. Um, they're open to the general public, all three recycling centers, and to businesses as well. Businesses need to identify themselves as businesses, which is as simple as bringing a business card uh, to uh, the staff person. Um, and uh, it is it is just so cool that they're doing this, and the grand opening is tomorrow, June 21st. They're going to be open uh, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. year round. Uh, I don't know how many of our listeners are out in Kane County, but this is really good for you guys. Uh, they will accept items, appliances like toasters, blenders, microwaves, uh, no freon containing devices. Uh, electronics, yeah. they have an accepted uh, list, items list. Uh, so, you know. To pay for TV recycling. Though, right. right. And, 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 yeah. And, uh, that's because it's a $25 fee for screens under 21 inches and $35 for screens 21 inches or larger. Um, and here's the reason you got to do that, folks. Uh, not, you can't, not everything's a free ride. Uh, uh, electronics are banned from Illinois landfills and must be recycled. TVs and monitors contain lead and or mercury. It must be processed as hazardous material, uh, a more expensive process that makes the consumer base fee a necessity. 
and the fee is paid directly to the county's contracted electronics recycler, eWorks Electronic Services, a nonprofit located in Elk Grove Village uh, that employs people with developmental disabilities, and it helps to cover their costs to recycle these items. You're helping a good cause and responsibly and legally disposing of your used mm-hmm. electronics. So that's that's a good thing. So if you want more information, go to countyofcane, K-A-N-E, dot org slash recycling. Uh, it's as simple as that. And congratulations to Kane County. And I thank Jennifer Jarlin for uh, giving me that uh, information. Um, I'm going to mention just really briefly because we'll get to Monty and Rose. I'll let you uh, do a quick uh, Monty and Rose update. Um, you might have heard that the uh, the Illinois General Assembly was trying to pass the uh, Clean Energy Jobs Act. That has not happened. And they got to the end nothing of Nothing has happened. Nothing. Right. And it's being held up by coal plants and by gas-fired plants and by nuclear plants and trying to get together on all of those. I think what we need to do, Peggy, is have a couple of experts. So we're, we've been thinking of getting um, a Dave Kraft from mm-hmm. the uh, uh, e, what is it? The Energy Information Nuclear Energy N E I S Nuclear Energy Information Service N E I S, and um, uh, because uh, he's got very strong views about uh, nuclear energy, and it does it does feel like we're we're being held hostage uh, by the nuclear plants in Illinois since. Uh, the governor is trying to bail them out, and they were bailed out in the last negotiations um, back in 2016. Uh, and now we've got issues about when we can uh, decommission coal plants and decommission uh, natural gas uh, methane plants. Let's call them methane. Uh, that's that's the new thing. We uh, natural gas is just another way of saying methane, folks. Uh, so I'm just bringing that up because I've gotten emails from our friend. Lisa Albrecht, you know, and, and from the uh, Illinois Environmental Council and other people are just saying, hey, we, we, we got to get this through. You know, and we talked about it uh, on the show a few weeks ago and nothing happened. Now, I shouldn't say nothing because there's all kinds of negotiations behind the scene, yeah. but it nothing got passed. Uh, and we're yeah. still, and it's hard to say what will Thinking happen when they come back maybe, but yeah, can't tell. And it makes it harder now because they need now uh, a bigger majority to, uh, to pass this stuff. Although I, I don't know. Well, I do know it's, it's, it's the usual stuff. It's politics and energy mm-hmm. and the, uh, lobbyists and the money. Um, Backroom so, deals. uh, we'll see what happens with that. So let's, uh, on an upbeat note. Let's talk Monty and Rose. Monty and Rose, Chicago's famed Great Lakes piping plovers, back for a third year at Montrose Beach. Yay. Um, we reported last week or the week before that uh, the eggs had been eaten by a skunk that reached into the enclosure. Yikes. Um, earlier this week, they reported one new egg was seen, but now as of the 18th, um, 
Four eggs on the nest. Surveillance camera has revealed that Monty and Rose now have four eggs, their second one of the season after the first was breached by a skunk. They've put a much larger enclosure over the whole nest now to protect it from uh, predators so that they can't reach in. And um, it's being very, very closely monitored. And it looks like hopefully four eggs will will uh, will hatch with any luck. Well, if, if no more skunks get involved well, in, in well, something this. would have to get in now because before apparently the nest was close enough to the side of the cage that the skunk could reach in. Now something would have to actually breach it and get in. Well, what I read was that there was a, a hinge or a flange or a, a connector that failed on the old mm. cage. And that was the reason it was that the cage was, was, was uh, designed well enough except there was a failure in one of the parts of it. That's, that's what I saw. Okay. Well, there's a, there's a whole new enclosure that's up now. And this is according to Chicago piping plovers.org. Um, a new, very large enclosure placed over the nest. Uh, yeah. And I think they're going to, they've learned their lesson uh, from yeah. the, uh, <laughs> but that's, you know, as I said before, that's nature. That's the yep. that's the way these things yep. work. That's what skunks go after. Yeah, bird eggs. Exactly. So um, uh, I'm glad to see that uh, that Monty and Rose are back at it. This just you know, if that isn't inspiration, I don't know what is. Um, okay. Uh, the only other thing that I wanted to get to, but I'm not sure if it's necessary at the moment. Um, is uh, I got uh, actually a couple of weeks ago got a notice from Open Lands. Uh, you can go to openlands.org um, about drought conditions and what you should be doing. Now, I'm hoping that uh, we're going to break the drought. We've had some rain a couple of times this past week. You only had it once, really. You've had rain. I Lake had County rain. Has, Parts of Lake County have had rain, but well, not all of it. Did you get any rain I, in the second bout? Yeah. The the one a couple days ago, I got like a half an inch. Okay. And I got less. I, I really only got about four tenths of an inch in the second one. So you got more than I did uh, for that one. Well, but let's we... pay back for the rain barrel. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not sure I want any more after the rain barrel incident. Um, but uh, uh, Open Lands was talking about, in particular, newly planted trees. They got to be watered once a week for at least the first three years. Uh, mm -hmm. from bud break in the spring to the first frost in November. I think people forget that. They think after the first year, yeah, the tree's on its own now. Mm -hmm. No, a newly planted tree is a newly uh, planted tree for about three years. Arborists look at it that way. Uh, tree keepers look at it that way. That's yeah. how they're taught is that if you have a newly planted tree, think of it as newly planted for three years. So mm -hmm. keep your the water going. Um, and, that, and the plant health care report was saying in this type of a condition even very mature trees are needing the water it's not just the newly planted right trees. and that's the other thing right uh mature trees as well don't assume that just because a tree's been around forever it can get by uh during a severe drought yeah a moderate drought some trees will but uh, uh was it skeet uh showing me some uh damage uh to trees but i also saw a thing in the um the arboretum um, yeah, the uh, plant, plant health care report. Yeah, chlorosis, which uh, can yeah. can be a, a soil issue, uh, but it can also be a dryness 
issue. So My milkweeds have that right now. Yeah, you said you, you've got uh, chlorotic milkweed, which is really weird. Mine's not chlorotic. I looked at it. It's a, a little floppy because I don't have it. And it's all very short. All the milkweed I'm seeing this year in the area is short. Yeah. So uh, just just remember this. And in fact, why don't we talk to Rick DeMaio and see what's going to come up uh, this week and maybe the end of the drought. So stick around. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, and we will be right back. You can help slow climate change in 2021 by composting. And you don't even need a backyard. By composting communally in multi-unit buildings across Chicagoland, Collective Resource Compost has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. CRC brings you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter, they swap it out, and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us. Whether you're a farmer or a backyard gardener, assist your soil in providing key nutrients to your plants with Spectrum Soil Inoculum from Tinyo Biologicals. The beneficial microorganisms in Spectrum break down and release vital nutrients and make them more accessible to your plants. Spectrum works with nature to decompose organic matter into humus, building richer, healthier soil. Spectrum is approved for use on certified organic crops and is OMRI listed. Get Spectrum at blazing-star.com. All right. Looks like we might have Rick. I believe we do. Let's go to meteorologist. Hey there, dude. How are you? Hi, Mike. Hi, Peg. Happy uh, Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Yeah, Happy, happy Father's, father's day, day to you. I mean, thank you, and to the mothers, and to the mothers who made them fathers. Okay. There you go. Um, and uh, I, I was. We're gonna yeah. have an audience of one. I, I, I have no idea where that's going and I'm, and I'm, and I'm not sure. Uh, so, uh, I was looking at radar this morning and seeing a big blob just, uh, about at the Mississippi river. Are we, is that getting closer to Chicago? Yeah, it is. But I think the leading edge is probably just going to produce some light to moderate rain. Um, the activity that is on the front edge of this quote, mesoscale convective vortex um, actually started out in parts of eastern Colorado and southeast Wyoming last night. Um, and it's been able to hold together as what we call a mesoscale convective system that has moved across Nebraska. It's moved across Iowa, moved across northern Missouri. All the areas that needed to rain got about an inch and a half to two and a half inches. Um, hmm. But those areas in Nebraska and parts of Iowa pretty much need about six to eight inches. So they only got about 25 percent of what they need. The good thing uh, is that we're heading into a cloudier, cooler pattern. So any rain that did fall, uh, most likely will be able to soak down into the soil and not evaporate, which is what happened um, last week when we had nearly four inches of rain evaporate from the soil due to the fact that we were so warm. That leading edge of the rain most likely will get here probably by about one or two o'clock, just in the form of light rain showers. And then the developing area of low pressure out across pretty much like the Dakotas down into Minnesota uh, will form a fairly strong cold front. Uh, one that we haven't seen around here in quite some time of that vigor. Uh, and if there's enough low level return flow into the front, that should promote a squall line and probably what's called a quasi linear convective system means that you'll have like some wiggles along it. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if there's enough, if there's enough 
a movement of the squall line that could produce some, you know, downward motion, which means severe weather and some large hail. Uh, but right now, I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, usually when you get thunderstorms of this variety in the morning, it kind of keeps the atmosphere a little bit on the stable side. Nonetheless, even if we don't get severe weather, there's enough moisture in the atmosphere where the second bout of rain could produce uh, an inch and a half to two inches of rain. Now, if those areas in Iowa that got the one to two inches of rain get an additional one and a half to two inches of rain, they will have gotten nearly 50% of the rain that they need, which, again, is really, really good because Iowa, which is the number one state from the standpoint of producing uh, corn number two from soybeans, Illinois is number two in corn and number uh, one in soybeans. Um, that's really, really needed because over the next two weeks is the most crucial stage for corn and soybeans because they begin pollinating in the first week of mm -hmm. July. So this is really, really well needed, you know, needed rain, welcome rain. And the uh, commodity markets, the Board of Trade in Chicago on Friday, uh, the markets reflected that when they were way up on Wednesday and Thursday. And when the forecast came out for rain this weekend and the next 8 to 14 days being cooler, they dropped back down again because there's a huge demand from China for soybeans from the United States. So the fact that our weather is not only important for us here, it's also important globally as well. Yeah, I want to uh, show you. Let me uh, find this here. Here it is. Um this is uh, something you sent the uh, other day, and this is Iowa. And looking at the rain deficits there, it's pretty spectacular in some places. Yeah, and, and what's really amazing, Mike and Peg, is, you know, when you watch Chicago TV, you know, we focus on, you know, Midway and O'Hare and the lakefront, and we put every once in a while you'll see, you know, a, a meteorologist put some really cool graphics up. But when you get out into you know, places like Des Moines and places like, you know, even the Quad Cities or maybe Sioux City, you see their meteorologists really get into the important stuff. And I grabbed this from uh, one of the stations out of Des Moines, and they must have went through probably two minutes of, of ag weather. Now, granted, Chicago is Chicago. Des Moines is much different because Iowa, I think 90% of the state um, is farmland. But 75 per state, 75 percent of the state of Illinois is farmland. And, and I think oftentimes the, the TV weather people here kind of tend to forget about that. You can kind of broaden your scientific horizons and talk more about the rest of the state. But when I was looking at the, the, the weathercaster presenting this, I was blown away by how much detail she got into. She showed not only the map, which is the most current map from Thursday, because you can see how the extreme drought is over northeast Illinois. Yeah. Look how much of Iowa is underneath, you know, um, severe drought, which is that kind of dark brown. And not only that, they don't post how much rain fell, but they post how much rain is is almost kind of like what's needed. And, and this really kind of shows you what I'd like to see also is you could actually put on here um, kind of like if you just got normal rainfall where you would be say by the end of August, you would still be down probably about four inches. And the difficulty now is you need to be in a surplus rainfall pattern, and we're not in that. So the chances of this drought remaining significant in parts of Iowa, um, even though we'll get some decent rains, 
um, is is pretty likely. Here in Northeast Illinois, again, you have like maybe, I think there's a map I sent you as well, which shows just the state of Illinois. You know, we got uh-huh. some decent rains last Sunday. I think, Peg, you got, what, was it about half? Is that what you said in Highland Park? No, that was during the week. Last Sunday was nothing. Um, yeah. And I don't have yeah, the, yeah. the, I didn't uh, load up the just the Illinois, but you can see it from here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the yeah. whole, the, the Midwest think, route. Right. But I think, Peg, you had like, about an inch and a half Thursday night into Friday, correct? Half an inch. Only half an inch. Okay. So it was basically like northern sections of Lake County that got about an inch and a half. But again, what it shows you here is that area of Iowa and northwest Illinois um, is probably the most significant. The red area over northeast Illinois, really the only county that's being affected by that uh, is probably just McHenry County. Much of Lake County, there's not really a, a whole heck of a lot of large areas of farming. But even northern DeKalb County got some decent rain. So I would not be surprised if by the time we get to next Thursday's map, that red is almost most likely eradicated. And the severe drought has probably shrunk as well. Uh, but in the places really where it's needed, in Minnesota, Minnesota is actually the third most prevalent state in the U.S. for corn. Most people wouldn't think wow. that. Yeah, but mm-hmm. that area, if you've ever driven along 94 from Madison through La Crosse across southern Minnesota, it's all corn. Yeah. It's amazing how much of that southern area of Minnesota is farmland. But most people go, Minnesota, it's cold up there. No, there's a lot of parts of Minnesota. It's just like Iowa. It's corn, it's flat, um, got- and they're in a drought. Yeah, Green Giant around the Twin Cities is pretty big. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, what is it? I think Hormel, Hormello's there, and then there's another mm-hmm. uh, large manufacturer. Plant. Now, this one, I, I like this map a lot. Yeah, this I like is it actually, too. Yeah. This is 180 days. This goes back basically six months. And, it, you know, Mike and Peg, this is what we were talking about. I mean, this show was talking about this back in January and February and March. And we kept saying, even though we're green right now, this is all young vegetation, and all you need is a week of dry weather and hot weather and all that green just go crump like that. So this yeah. really shows you where where these things, you know, where this started. But one thing I don't understand, Mike, is I don't understand why municipalities still have to send out their workers and cut grass in public areas down to this when we're in the middle of a drought. Why, why, do, they, why do they do that? Is there any way that – you can kind of go there and say it's not a good idea to cut the grass down to here where in the middle oh. of drought. I mean, is, there, is there anything I, you could do about that? I, boy, I, I, I sure wish there there were because um, it and a lot of companies do that too. Not not just municipalities, but private companies because they're on a schedule. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, right. because cause you'll see them out in the rain and they're cutting grass in the rain. If you know, uh, unless well, and, and the oh, idea, yeah. it's not about the grass. It's about the schedule, and that's the problem, is that when yeah. you're dealing with growing things, you have to pay attention to what is growing and how it's growing. But companies have a bottom line, and they're sending people out on the schedule because that's what they consider important. But I, I, I don't think realize that when, you, when you're cutting grass down to an inch height during a drought, it doesn't do well. For the soil, it doesn't do well for the soil to now be more exposed to sun and dry. <laughs> I, no, I it, don't understand it. 
it just kills the grass is what it does. I mean, it's, it's, it's creating, but there's an educational gap here. Well, of expectations. yeah, well, there's an educational gap and there's, uh, again, it's, it's the way uh, bureaucracies are set up, and you know what do you do with those guys if you don't send them out to to cut the grass? Um, I, you know, and there should be something you could do, and uh, but it it doesn't make any sense to do that because now you've added uh, uh, costs because you're going to have to do something with the grass that no longer exists. You're going to have to reseed. You're going to have to regrow it. Uh, so it costs you money when you do that. Maybe the idea, maybe the idea is to mow the hell out of it during a drought, so that in another month when we're in a really, really, really bad situation, there's no grass to mow, and then, and then instead of just mowing grass, they're like literally with those weed whackers throwing dust and dirt everywhere. I mean, yeah. I, I just, I don't, I don't get it at all. Yeah, and and uh, here's another map you sent that I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. This is uh, the uh, seven day period ending uh, two days ago. Uh, where we had some rain, and you can see Wisconsin did okay, uh, and yeah. even and we even did uh, not too bad uh, in the uh, in the Chicago area. Uh, so if we keep chipping away at that, um, we yeah. might break some of this drought. What about yeah, out and, west? And this, <laughs> oh, yeah, well, we will no, get that's to that. Fine, Peg. Well, no, I, Peg, I, you're talking about the Western U.S. or Western Illinois? Yeah, no, Western U.S. Oh, okay. that's that's well, coming up. Well, you want you want to look yeah. at that? We can look at that right now too. No, no, so no, there no, it is. No, no. Go go back to this one. Let's okay. All right. Yeah, let's go back. So so it's important to note this yellow here. Um, the rain that came down on Thursday, Thursday night into Friday, uh, an inch and a half. No, no, no. That was last Saturday, an inch and a half at O'Hare. Um, the one that came down on Thursday and Friday um, was part of this second complex, but. That yellow actually was 2.49 inches at Elk Grove Village, and it was a pretty decent rain that kind of fell across western Cook County, which is why the map that was issued Thursday morning didn't have this new rainfall on it. Okay, so with people looking at the map that showed all of that red, that map had information up until Wednesday. 24 hours later, all this fell, which is why all of that area now most likely will go back to probably – just severe drought as opposed to extreme drought. Yeah, this now, is yeah, the, that is, this is the map you're talking about. So there's a lot of this won't be there, especially where the dark red is in some of the the brown area. Right. Now, if you go to the seven day rainfall, what's also good um, is that this fell in the Wisconsin River uh, watershed. So a lot of this will also flow down into some of these tributaries, which will probably help some of the farmers in Northeast Iowa if they have to. Um, grab some of that water from the Wisconsin River and the Mississippi to help with irrigation because most likely they are irrigating out in this area. Also, this part of western Iowa that had about two and a half to three inches after the drought, they got another one to two inches on top of that. So this is really good news for all of central Iowa. Also, in addition to that, uh, rain fell also in areas of parts of southwest lower Michigan. Now, this area here in southern Illinois, they don't need the rain. In fact, the last two nights, I think the St. Louis area has had nearly a half a foot of rain. So it's been really, really wet across central areas of Missouri, into Illinois, uh, parts of Indiana, and also into um, Ohio. But the bottom line is the number one and number two states from a standpoint of corn and soybeans, Iowa and Illinois, 
50% of them are in severe drought. And that's one of the reasons why the markets are, re- are reacting that way. Now, if you and, want to go to the West, we can talk about that. No, well, no. Look, before we do that, but let's look at the seven-day uh, precipitation t- uh, to come that is being oh, uh, forecast, yep. forecast, which is uh, pretty good news uh, for parts of Illinois and Iowa. Oh, yeah. And, and this actually started yesterday morning. So this will include the rain that's coming through this afternoon and tomorrow. And then there's another batch that looks like it may come through Thursday night into Friday. Uh, but we're definitely in more of a trend where we'll see some of these not so much thunderstorm type events, but more of a cold front type event where you get more widespread kind of lighter totals, but over a larger area. And that's what's really needed right now. You just get these pop-up areas of thunderstorms, um, it doesn't really help too much. I mean, there's some areas where farmers have, you know, 5,000 acres, and they know that one side of their, their farm could get like an inch and a half, and the other side might get a half inch, you know, like with Pagot, a half inch where, you know, western areas of Cook County, granted that's not a farm, but it kind of alludes to that point. Also, this area here, um, they've been doused with very, very heavy rain over the last couple of days. So this area, I think, is going to do pretty well. But again, it's that northern part of Iowa and also northwest Illinois that's really in dire straits right now. You can go to the next map. Well, I wanted to show this one, too. This is more about the the previous map. It relates to that, the 6 to 10-day precipitation probability. Uh, So it's looking better for this part of the uh, country. Yeah, yeah, this one and then even the 8 to 14-day looks pretty good. And again, it's also important to note that it's not so much precipitation, but it's also evaporation. So that first four inches of soil, that's where a lot of the plants are getting rooted right now. That's where they really need to help. Once they get those roots down below four inches, then they'll rely on what's called subsoil. So you have topsoil, then you have subsoil. And it's amazing. You look at some of those crop reports that I send, um, they really go into depth between topsoil moisture subsoil moisture because then at that point they know that all that's coming back up to the plants then they get into the pollination stage then you could really get the plant rooted um but right now the farmers are just basically trying to make sure what they planted can get rooted so that when rains do come they're able to you know tap into that subsoil moisture so yeah the science of of agriculture and meteorology are really interrelated quite a bit so this is temperature this is the 8 to 14 day, and you can see that cooler area over the southern Ohio Valley. By the way, right where that earthquake was last week, by the way, yeah. like you noticed more than anything is this just large region of just hot weather um, that is now actually shifting northward. So now it's moving up into northern California, northwest Nevada, where no one lives, <laughs> but also parts of Oregon as well. And it's interesting to note, you know, this sometimes doesn't make the news, but I was looking at both Phoenix and Tucson, and Phoenix actually set a record that isn't really, quote, a weather record, but it's a climate record. They hit their fifth consecutive day of 115 degrees or higher. Fifth consecutive wow. day of 115 degrees or higher. They've never done that before. Matter of fact, the record that they broke, Mike and Peg, was the one that they set Last year was when they hit 115 degrees four days in a row, and they did that twice last year. So mm. one of the things that we like to talk about with not so much climate change but climate variability 
is there's different ways of expressing not, o- not only extremes, but what we call trends of extremes or trends of averages. So when you get 115 days, when you get 115 degrees, five days in a row, and these records go back to 1895. Now, granted, people go, oh, but 1895, before that, what was the, what were the records? That doesn't matter because Phoenix didn't literally exist before 1895 <laughs> from a state of being an urban heat island. Not only did Phoenix do that, but Tucson. Tucson was 110 degrees for the eighth consecutive day. During that trend or during that period, I think they had four records set. But what you do is if you would go in there and look at the average number of degrees over that period of time, we've never seen that before. Even Vegas, four days in a row of over 110. uh, And I think there were a couple of days where they've hit, you know, like 117. But one of the things that's interesting is you look at these overnight low temperatures. Everybody is setting these, these record what I'm trying to think of how to say it, these record high minimums where like the overnight low didn't get below 90 degrees. And one of the reasons why that's happening in some of these urban centers like Vegas, like Phoenix and like Tucson is what are people running constantly during the, during the overnight period? They're air conditioners. What mm-hmm. do air conditioners produce on the outside at night? Like a big air conditioner unit? Heat. It produces heat. So one of the things that we're seeing is that these these areas where you're getting just phenomenal amounts of heat during the day and you're super hot, you know, just super warm at night, people are like saying, I need to stay cool at night. So, in fact, what we're seeing here is not only it being super hot at night or super hot at day, but incredibly warm at night due to the fact that all of these air conditioning units are running. And as you can see, the, uh, the drought just uh, continues uh, pretty much unabated in the West. Uh, Although it was interesting, we talked to uh, uh, Kathleen's uh, sister uh, just the other day, and she's in uh, San Diego, and they were dealing, like the U.S. Open was, with the marine layer coming in, cool and and, uh, uh, moist, uh, though not raining. Um, So if you're you're right there on the coast, it's, it's a different story. Right. And one of the things they do, I think you've heard this before, they call it May grade and also June bloom. Um, <laughs> that usually occurs when you get really hot inland and what's called the thermal lobe. It literally pulls the marine layer in. But because it's such a shallow layer, the moisture is being condensed as it moves over the mountains. That's one of the reasons why you get fog. Now, I have to point out something to you. I don't know if you guys watch Bill Maher Friday night. Did anybody, did any of you watch no, it? No, no. I HBO, okay. nope. Okay, um, he put up a map of the drought, and his map was old. But it wasn't hmm. even from this year. It was, like, from last year. So I'm watching it with Rebecca. I jumped off the couch. I'm like, what is this? This is not even a current map. <laughs> so um, I spent probably about a half hour, and I finally found the email to his executive producer, and I sent the current <laughs> map of the drought and a current map – and I'll send it to you, the current map of the drought, and then a link. And I'm like, dude, if you're going to talk about climate change, which you do all the time, use current data. I mean, I don't know how that, I don't know how that map got on because it actually had drought through parts of northern Illinois. I mean, uh, southern, central Illinois. So I don't know where he got it from. So whether or not I'm going to get a response come from him saying, 
you know, F you and the horse you rode in on, or thanks so much for this. This is great. We'd like to have you on the show. I don't know. Yeah. But the bottom <laughs> line is, if you're going to use a map that shows drought, make sure it's current. I mean, come on. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I was, so I last, was really disappointed. So last week, you're, you're writing to the New York Times and saying, hey, dude, you're not getting right. it right. And this week, you're writing to Bill Maher. So uh, you'll end up <laughs> famous uh, for for whatever reason, by the way, um, I'm uh, both close, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, regarding our conversation about mowing lawns, uh, Audrey wrote to us, said neighbors complain loudly when the grass is not cut in their neighborhood parks. Here's the problem, Audrey, oh, when there's no rain, it, the grass doesn't grow. It's thin. Like, you know, like, uh, like, like your hair is disappearing, you know, it's not growing. Uh, and there's no reason yeah, to cut it. You don't get more haircuts, right? You let it grow out. <laughs> but right. What we want to do is we want all of our public lungs have a comb over. How about that? <laughs> okay. We'll figure out how to, how to do that. Uh, okay. Well, one side to the other side, right? Uh, yeah. So while we're getting uh, a little bit of relief in the Midwest, I assume that uh, none of that in sight for the West part of the country. Oh, God, no. No. In fact, I also sent you a map, if you want to show that to your um, audience. It's a national map of rainfall needed, which is a great map, which really begins to show. I don't remember um, seeing that one. uh, It was on there. Uh, well, okay. You sent me a lot of stuff, so uh, I don't have that one uh, available. But anyway, go ahead. It's in the PDF, but nonetheless, um, if you want to share it with your audience, um, eventually it, it shows you <laughs> not only not only the area of drought, but the area that, that rain that rain is needed. And what Bill Maher did a really good job of on Friday night. Here I am criticizing Bill Maher. He talked about the need that California has for agriculture. Which crop in, in in California do you think needs the most rain or the most water oh. for irrigation? Oh. Almonds, yeah. Almonds, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's a phenomenal number. And it's like, why are, we, why are we putting so much water into this crop when it needs to go elsewhere? So the bottom line is, and, and if, you ever, if you ever want to watch a really great movie about bringing water to the people, it's Chinatown. Yeah. Because everything about, everything about that movie was – how they were diverting water from the orange grove areas, which California was known for back in the twenties and thirties into the areas where people needed it. So it was really interesting. So I wonder if we're going to get into one of these quote water wars, uh, by the time we get to, you know, maybe the end of July or August, because it mm-hmm. is really, really bad out there. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 and- you look at the the, the lake levels; they're just and and the Colorado River barely exists yeah. uh, at, at this point. Uh, yeah, and they're talking about uh, uh, instituting laws that have been on the books a long time, but they've never had to go to. Right, Peg, you were going to say something. Yeah. I was going to say in yeah. Colorado, Michael posted that article earlier in the week about how they're going after ponds on ranches. Right. Oh yeah, out there, water is like oil. It really is. But one last thing, and I hate making predictions like this, but this is when it's going to start to become a war in California, is when you start to have massive wildfires and you have people's homes and you have vineyards and you have horse ranches literally on the edge of the flames and the firemen have no water going through their hoses. That's when it's going to become an issue. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I, when I, you start to see water being used for, for golf courses – I mean, Torrey Pines is green. 
Why? Because it's all being watered. But when you start to ration water for the sake of rich white men going out and hitting the golf ball, I'm, there's something wrong with that. I think that's a, a good ending point. So uh, give us a forecast. All right. So this band of showers coming through will probably weaken, but we may have something coming through here between about two and four, but the main front won't come through until about probably eight or nine o'clock tonight. So we'll have a decent band of rain. Hopefully it'll come through really slowly and we'll get about an inch out of it. That's probably my guess is what we'll get. Um, but that'll only be about 30% of where we need to be. So we're going to be about probably still five to six inches below what we need. Um, after that tomorrow, low to mid seventies or mid seventies with cloudy and cooler conditions. And then Tuesday and Wednesday, just beautiful, you know, mid June weather. And I know it like astronomically summer starts tomorrow, but who cares about that when I really think about it. Um, and then it looks like we'll get into another little pack pocket of warm eviction rain, probably by Thursday and into Friday. Uh, but we're definitely into a pattern over the next two weeks that no heat, no huge amounts of evaporation. So any rain that we do get will probably stick around in the soil for a fairly long time. You were talking about an inch of rain for tonight. Is that going to be widespread? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I would say 90% of the area is going to get an inch of rain. So this will probably be the most beneficial rain around here in about a month. Wow. Yeah, that's a long time. That's a long time. Okay. All right, Rick. Yeah, have a great week. Uh, we'll talk to you uh, next Sunday. Manana. Uh, well, or whatever for next week. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think that just about does it here now. If I can find, um, is this what I'm looking for? Yeah, this guy. Okay, let's do this. Woo! Okay, thanks to everybody on the show, to uh, Craig LaHoulier. LaHoulier! I, I wanted to say that, and I never did. LaHoulier! <laughs> Uh, and uh, Keith Mueller, uh, a.k.a. Casey Tomato. Uh, thanks uh, to uh, meteorologist Rick Tamayo. Thanks to Kathleen. Thanks to Lagata and Basil. And no thanks to Comcast. So, uh, no. Uh, but thanks to everybody watching the show and sticking with us. We appreciate it. Until next time, go green or... Go home. Uh, Stadler? Yeah, uh, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. <laughs>